I was in the bookstore the other day and I saw his um, his new book where he interviews Trump. It's like the most disgusting thing I've ever read. Which Bill, from Bill? Bill O'Reilly. Like, God. Yeah, he is a cretin. He really is a fucking cretin. The only one who's tolerable is Tucker. And even even Tucker is like obviously a piece of shit. Shep Smith got, or no, he left uh, like two weeks ago. Why did he leave? He was basically forced out because he refused to toe the Trump line. And he's like, this is bullshit. Like, I'm not just going to bald-faced lie. It, it may, I mean, for a principled conservative, it would make sense to not like Trump. I'm surprised Tucker hasn't completely disavowed him. Tucker's weird. I can't, like, get an angle on him. He's an odd mix of opinions. He reads Jacobin. Really? Yeah. Well, didn't he reach out to DSA and was like, hey, come on my show? Yeah, but he did that to so I publicly can, own. And yeah, I was going to say him. so that I can corner someone. <laughs> yeah, he had a Mimi Salty Stick, the 2016 presidential nominee for the Socialist Party on it and just completely made a fool of him. Yeah. Like, he, just, he made him look so pathetic. It was yeah, really for real. It, it really was I mean, Mimi shameful. makes himself look pathetic just by existing, you know? That's, you know what? I think Tucker didn't even need to say anything. He could just look with that stupid fucking face of his uh, where he opens his mouth and I hate that face I just want to punch him in the face every time I see him do that thing where he's like <laughs> uh, <laughs> when he just puckers his yeah, lips for he, no reason he puckers this like incredulous way where he's like he's feigning shock or whatever or confusion he just looks like yeah, he's, confusion. he's lost you know like why am I here like I can't possibly comprehend the things that this person's saying that's definitely what you want in a leader that's the look well, he's doing it to like make a point that like the things they're saying are so incomprehensibly stupid, I think. Yeah. I mean, that makes sense. It's just, I don't know. Yeah. Like, you're not going to lead anything with that look. No. It's like a high school debate. Well, I look. think we're talking about, are we talking about Mimi or Tucker? I'm talking about Tucker. Yeah. Yeah. I mean. Mimi's got his own problem, but we don't need to make fun of the guy's face. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, he did show up on live television with a beanie. Hi, I want to be the president of the United States. I'm wearing a beanie. I don't know why that bothers me so much, but it's just... It's right up there I, with Obama wearing a tan suit. God damn it. Well, it's not really <laughs> the presentation. It's just that, like, if if Mimi were to win the presidential election, which, you know, even though that's not ever going to happen, is in some sense, right? Like, you want to have enough groundswell where you're some sort of threat, right, to win the election, right? Like, yeah. The first thing that you could go after anybody who runs on a socialist ticket is that they have no ability to manage or advance like dealing with social problems. They don't have the skills. They don't have the um, expertise. They're surrounded by people who will be like the greatest grifters of all, you know? Oh, yeah. So the anime appraisers. Do you say the anime of razors? Appraisers. Oh, yeah. The Remember anime. that tweet where it's like, no, in fact, I at post-revolution, I will be an anime appraiser <laughs> once work is abolished. All right, I'm going to do the intro now. Welcome, everybody, to the Literal Fiction Book Club, where we read books so you don't have to, but you should anyway. My name is Sam Johnson, uh, and joining me today is... Alex. And Troy. All right, so this week, we've uh, finished Charles Dickens' Tale of Two Cities, um, and that was from the chapter titled The Plea all the way to the very end. Um, so I guess to kick things off, um, there's been some changes in policy around uh, S- Syria and Turkey invaded northern Syria. But then it seems like there's been some uh, negotiations for a peace is what I know. 
Yeah, I mean, Trump's coming out today saying he's withdrawing sanctions on Turkey, right? Because they've brokered some kind of fantastic deal. Well, it's now permanent because there are Russian troops who are doing cross-border joint exercises with the Turks. So we basically, like, Turkey is now just Russia's proxy. Great for a NATO member. That's great. Right. Really, really good look. I really wish there was a way to kick them out. Honestly, NATO just needs to be completely reformed um, or or abolished. Yeah. Because it's like North Atlantic. Like, where, why are the Baltic countries in this? Why is Turkey in this? It's the naming convention that's the real problem with NATO. (laughs) (laughs) Really grinds my gears. Yeah. I mean, (laughs) the Baltics, they are at least in, in Latvia, they took a lot of pride in the fact that they're a NATO member. I went to their Museum of War and they had like massive. Uh, exhibits on you know their involvement overseas since joining the treaty organization like they seem to take a lot of pride in the fact that they are a nato member and an eu member like it's a big part of their national identity we we went from oh yes uh, foreign war museums oh yeah they give you kind of secondary trauma like i discussed this with a guy from new york he went to the nuke museum outside of Hiroshima because his parents were in the military. So he's in Japan for a stint as a kid. And so he saw like all this stuff and he's like 10 years old and it still haunts him. It's really cool in Vienna. There's like downed allied planes and it's like war trophies. And it's like, oh, it's so weird that you see it like our stuff in museums. Yeah. Yeah. I, um, I went to Japan when I was 14 um, with my grandmother and we went to the Hiroshima like, uh, bombing museum i guess and uh it was actually quite nice uh in i mean like it was like a it was it wasn't really harsh in any particular direction it just kind of gave the circumstances around it and then it was just that sort of general maybe we shouldn't use nuclear bombs kind of feel um and i thought it was uh, i thought it was respectful towards the the history and then also really brought to life the the circumstances of the bombing for the individuals who were on the ground and they didn't shy away from any of the horrific aspects of it you know with the burning of flesh and like literally people evaporating you know um who were really close to the explosion so uh yeah i i do find foreign war museums to be interesting in that way similar to like how a holocaust museum is interesting yeah i've only been to one holocaust memorial or I guess I went to the one in New York, but again, in Latvia, my most recent trip, I went to the site where pretty much all of Riga, the, the biggest city in Latvia's Jews were li- murdered. It was like, I think, like like thousands and thousands in one evening were taken out and executed. And it was a really like eerie, haunting, like a uh, postmodern styled uh, memorial that was like some... Like it's something about like the understated nature of it, where it wasn't kind of like you were describing, like it, it wasn't obscuring the facts at all, but it wasn't really making any grand political arguments aside from the fact that this is a horror that must never happen again. Isn't um, it nice that foreign museums don't like make it propaganda? So refreshing. <laughs> yeah, or at least prop- it is propaganda, but it's propaganda against genocide and the complacency of neighbors, you know, or you know, the complacency of the residents of Latvia, who, as according to the Latvian museums I went to, didn't have a significant history of anti-Semitism. Whether or not that's true or not, I, I don't know. But the fact that that could happen so swiftly is pretty extreme, since I think it was like 96% of Latvia's Jews were murdered. 
Well, were they murdered under the like command of the German army, or was it yeah. internal? Yeah, no, it was with the occupation forces. But... Right. Yeah. Um, I do find that like I'm uncomfortable with this idea of never forgetting. Right. As if like the problem was that we didn't remember. Right. That oh, if we only remember the Holocaust or we remember the Rwandan genocide, then there'll be more no more genocides. I mean, I think people most of the time remember that the Holocaust happened, but genocides still continue. That's totally, that's a good point. I saw a really hot take on the Rwandan genocide. There's like statistics just based on the number of Hutus and Tutsis that were in the country at the time versus afterwards, that it was actually more of just a full-blown civil war because the number of Tutsis that died was also extremely high. Now, nobody knows because, I forget the name of the president, but basically he's just clamped down on everything and he waves the bloody shirt. It's crazy. Like they gather in football stadiums and he'll like just recite passages and people are like passing out because this is only 25 years ago. They remember it. And like, oh God, just like such a brazen use of people's grief. But also you never know what actually happened, but it's crazy to me. Yeah. But I mean, I guess with the genocide, it's, it's the intent. You know, it's like it's like the systematic intent to ethnically cleanse. So even if it came at the, you know, at the, the toll of, Oh, significant amount of, uh, is it, uh, like a significant, even if it came at the toll of a significant amount of Tutsis dying, like their intent was to ethnically cleanse the Hutus from their neighborhoods. I mean, that also blows me away that, um, just, I guess in, with genocide, it's just like, there's a tipping point. Cause that was just like normal neighbors. And then the next day it's like, oh, we're going to have machetes and we're going to cut up your grandma. It's like, what? Like, obviously there had been rising tension and it had been there, but it's just like, at some point it tipped over and like it became mass or everyone joined in. Yeah. It's hard to imagine that happening. Like the conditions where that would happen, especially here. Um, I mean, this isn't me attempting to transition, but it, the discussion does remind me of how um, Dickens views the mobs of England and France, you know, absolutely caught up in mass psychology. um, And, you know, when those social forces kind of take hold, right? Like people who would not, behave that way otherwise um become complicit um absolutely i like how he describes mob mentality i was surprised by how sympathetic he is to them though like i was very surprised that he kind of has a nuanced view and almost accepting of the revolution overall um i mean he condemns their excesses but he seems to be i think mildly in favor of it yeah i mean i think he still takes the carlisle line that maybe not so strictly conservative. Um, but yeah, the very end, he seems to be looking towards a brighter future for Europe. Um, that the, like, you know, he understands. And I think the point of Carlisle's that he really takes to heart is this idea of a decadent and rotting aristocracy that bore this fruit. It's a bad fruit, but it was a necessary result of these, you know, hundreds of years of um, oppression and limitation. Yeah. And I think I have, uh, on multiple occasions, I think characters reference that surely this is a a sad thing for you or your loved one to die, but you would do that for the republic. That's like like I think that's a theme that comes up a few times. That like these are tragic, these are horrible things, but they are sacrifices in order for the republic to exist. And Defarge also, Madame Defarge also specifically says that like she doesn't really care if one person dies. Like I've been sitting here my whole life seeing the poor people be tortured and imprisoned and dying and nothing happens. So why should I care now? Yeah. 
and I mean, you know, for all of uh, Madame Defarge's being presented as this malevolent, you know, murderous antagonist, right? Like, that's the point she makes that is the most salient, right? She's a great villain. I am very much a fan of her as the antagonist. Um, so I guess to jump in the book, since we're talking about it, um, we've finished. And so uh, I kind of want to start at the end um, because the ending is what stuck with me the most the first time I read it. So um, the you know, Charles Darnay is uh, imprisoned, you know, is is tried for a second time and is uh, awaiting his death. And um, the drunkard loser. Sidney Carton um, has a plan and his plan is to switch places with Charles um, and he does this through some manipulation of a spy who he has information on and um, he switches places with Charles and is brought to the scaffold and um, and guillotined and so I wanted to ask like what do we think of um, of Carton's character development uh, did you expect this to be the way that the novel would end Um what do we think about his sacrifice? Like, what was it, you know, was it for Lucy? Was it for, um, was it for Charles? Was it for, you know, redemption? Uh, and uh, do you think that his attempt at redemption was was a good idea? Or did he actually absolve himself of his poor conduct before? I think it's it's noble and, it, and it's about sacrifice for something that you see as, as worth it, which is the family, Lucy, little Lucy. Um, and I think... Charles Darnay, I think, is less of a factor in his equation. I think it has more to do with the child, the child, and and the, the mother. But I certainly didn't expect. I did, you know, I had never read this before, and it had never, I had never actually heard how it ends. So I didn't expect that at all um, when his character was first introduced. I knew the last line just because it's so famous, but I like it's about four paragraphs long. He gives a good long speech about like basically, I have a dream that Europe is not going to be as terrible as it is now. Um, I think that his character development, I didn't think he was that much of like a scoundrel. Like, so he drinks a little bit. They literally say earlier in the book that at this period, everybody was drunk all the time. So I don't, I don't know. I didn't see, unless I missed something like any major character flaws in him when he presents himself to Lucy as being a possible suitor. He's basically just like drunk and sad and like, I'm not worthy. He's like lacking in self-worth, but then he's also really competent in Paris like he's the guy that keeps it all together for the team because yeah I think it's a lot of it's because he found like a reason to like he was kind of like a guy who's floating floating through life without any real cause or meaning but this kind of provides him with a a an occasion to rise to which kind of gives his life some form of meaning and purpose yeah and I mean I don't think that Carton was presented as some sort of like a villain who redeems himself, but as like a wayward vagabond, you know, who goes out and is a bachelor, you know, I mean, Dickens being a Victorian avoids all references to sex. Right. Um, but we can imagine that those are implied, right. That he, he's probably a, a flanderer in some sense, right. He, um, he drinks too much. He hangs out with this, uh, Mr. Stiver, who's just like a complete dickhead. Um, and doesn't really have a future, right? And um, especially when the family of the Manets and and with Charles Darnay is see, you know, that's the ideal family for Dickens. You know, Carton doesn't live up to those manly virtues that Darnay has. He's just a mediocre, average guy. 
but he had a lot of promise, right? So like that was, you know, one of his big regrets was that he was a student, you know, uh, moving forward in life, had a, a future ahead of him and he blew it. And I think that's like his big regret. And so you get with his death at the end, you get this attempt. He quoted that um, line from the Bible, uh, you know, like, you know, believe in me and you will, you shall never die. Um, I forget the exact line, but I got uh, it if you want to. Yeah, please quote go ahead. Quote, I am the resurrection and the life, saith the Lord. He that believeth in me, though he were dead, yet shall live. And whosoever liveth and believeth in me shall never die. So it's like this attempt at immortality, and then you get like sort of the spiritual immortality of that line, but you also get the immortality of, at the very last page, of Carton talking about, you know, his Dickens putting words in his mouth, right? Which is a weird thing to say about his own character, but uh, that he's going to, you know, the Darnays are going to have a son, right? And they're going to name him after Sydney, and uh, he's going to go out and, and win in the world, right? And... um all of the things that Carton did wrong with his life, uh, that name that will be cleaned away, right, in this future. And I just found that very, like, touching and beautiful. I just found the, his character overall to just be kind of sad. Like, he just always seems, I mean, I know he's kind of wandering about, but it's not like he's necessarily shiftless. It's just that he's, like, emotionally unsteady, like, comes to Lucy and proposes to her just weeping. He's like, oh my God, I'm so sorry. Never tell anybody about this. I got to go. And then at the last line, everybody knows that it is a far, far better thing than I do now than I have ever done. But I think people, or at least I forgot the second part, it is a far, far better rest that I go to now than I have ever known, which like that's super sad. But also, yeah, if you're like in pain a lot, yeah, give me the guillotine. Yeah. And then his last moments with the the girl. God, that that That, gets me every time. That was probably the most... uh, emotionally uh, t- touching mm-hmm. yeah, poignant moment in the whole book for me do we know who she is i think i missed that part or is she just a random she prisoner? so um at least when she explains herself she had met darnay in the prison at one point but darnay's no longer there at sydney and you know when she says you know i'm just like a weak little thing you know can you hold my hand um and uh when she whispers to him like are you dying for him you know she recognizes that he's not darnay um, and then obviously when they get to the scaffold and, you know, she's, he walks her down and holds her hand and she asks like, you know, um, I have a cousin, we were separated from poverty, uh, you know, is like, is my death going to be worth it? Right. Um, and you know, he reassures her that, you know, you're going to a place where time doesn't exist, right? Everything's going to be okay. They'll be quick. Uh, but yeah, that was like heartrending. Yeah. Maybe tear up. I thought it was a, just a nice touch because the cast of characters is pretty tight like there's not that many characters in the book but i think when the few examples when there is a random nameless person they're obviously used for a specific purpose like this character is used to pull the heartstring at the end but it's done well like yeah i don't i don't feel as a reader like upset that there's no payoff for this character so we still get what we need to from it even though we don't know much about these characters which is a nice way of doing it yeah, and, and I think it um, it gives some meat to, like, the world that Dickens is in, um, or it gives some meat, rather, to the world that Dickens is creating by having all of these little side characters, um, you know, Robert Cly and, uh, you know, this young lady, um, the different, uh, like, Jocks 3, 
right? And um, The Vengeance, uh, Madame Defarge's second in command. Great name, great character. Yeah, I wish, I hope my surname is The Vengeance one day. Um, <laughs> I'll just name my dick The Vengeance. Great name uh, for your dick. It's My dick does have a name. It's It's the captain's log. I feel like this is the second time you brought this up on the podcast. Yeah, well, there's going to be more, all right? I'm proud of it. <laughs> Um, my favorite minor characters are definitely the three Jacques. I don't know why, but I just find it comical that they're called the three Jacques, even though they're terrible people, but they're fun. Like all the little spy, um, like the guy that is by the prison and talks to Lucy and he's like, Oh, how are you doing? And he's super nice to her. Yeah. Yeah. But it's actually, Oh, surprise. Like he's a pawn of Madame Defarge. Okay. Let's transition to uh, Madame Defarge, who is the, the evil antagonist of this story. Um, I find her particularly fascinating, um, and I see her largely as a foil to Dr. Manet, right? So um, it's revealed that Madame Defarge was uh, a um, uh, the sister of the family that uh, was m- murdered, raped, whatever, like taken advantage of by the uh, Evermond family, the nobility, which uh, Charles Darnay is a like a descendant of and uh she is consumed by this and one of my favorite scenes with her is um after they take the bastille and they're leading out that officer and uh uh dickens writes that she like stays very close to this officer throughout this whole thing and then when the blows come down and stab it like stab him and he dies and then she's brought to life and takes out her knife and cuts his head off uh yeah she puts a foot on the back of his neck yeah to make sure that it doesn't wobble don't be on her bad side. I do like that. Um, I mean, it is very Victorian that literally everybody is related or it's like a very small world in the cast of characters. But it also adds another another dimension of like, yes, the revolutionary fervor, but also like this is a personal vendetta. Like she wants to liquidate her personal enemies. Which I think with, you know, to go along with that idea of Dr. Manet is a foil, right? Is like Dr. Manet is in prison in the Bastille. Um, he writes that letter that eventually is used to convict Darnay, um, swearing vengeance against the nobility and the Evermonds, right? Uh, but, you know, Dr. Manet, it is revealed to him earlier, much earlier, that Charles, Ar- um, Charles Darnay is, you know, his captor's uh, nephew. So um, I just. You know, I see Dickens is making this point that, you know, one can be moral in chaotic circumstances. It's just whether you have the uh, the will and the, you know, the virtue, virtuous backbone, I guess, to to do it. I wonder if I mean, I appreciate that Dr. Manet would have written the letter saying, like, they took advantage of this family. They became out of it like this isn't right. I need to tell the court. But is that pretty dumb? Is that an English Thing? like would a french person have actually believed in the goodness of the court at that point to be like yes i'm going to speak truth to power like, i don't know if that idea would have actually happened in eight or the uh 1760s france well so like the courts were places to arbitrate these kinds of problems right um even in france you know when we um watched um i don't think we watched return of martin gear with you guys but there's a there's a book called The Return of Martin Gear, and yes, sorry, um, but uh, yeah. So in like medieval, late medieval France, the nobility was what made up the court system, and 
even Dr. Manet, like he wasn't saying he was trying to get justice out of this. He was trying to get it off his, you know, off his chest and he didn't even make accusations. He just wanted to like say what happened. Right. Um, so it didn't seem to me that he was looking for that, but I do agree with you, Brett. It could be an English preoccupation, right? I don't know what the exact differences between the court systems were at that time. I imagine they were pretty uh, significant. For it overall, I think that um, obviously it's the main thing that drove the plot. It did also in the back of my mind when I read this, I was like, ooh, this this was written in the 1830s. When was the Count of Monte Cristo written? Because this is literally like the plot device that is used to send, um, what's the main character's name in that? I forget it, but yeah. Anyway, the Count of Monte Cristo. Yep. He fucking ices all of them. The guy who becomes the Count of Monte Cristo. Yeah. It's literally the same plot device. It's like, hey, I have a letter with incriminating evidence. Oh, surprise, they found out. You're going to jail forever, and we burn the letter in front of you. That's a great book. It is a good book. That is an action-packed book. I love that book. It'd be a fun one to read. Yeah, we should definitely do that. I also do have a recommendation for a movie that's around this era for Dangerous Liaisons. If you've ever seen that? No. It's really good, and it has young Uma Thurman naked, so it's pretty high on the list. Does that is that like a whole letter grade upgrade for you? You know, B movie will be an A movie if Uma Thurman's naked in it. Um, no, I'd say you know gives give B to B plus. Oh, okay, so it's like a four point swing. Not bad. I mean, the movie's good overall. It has um Glenn Close and John Malkovich are the corrupt French Excellent. nobles, and then it's literally just about them like having nothing to do because they're landed aristocrats, so they just bang the day away with random people. And Uma Thurman happens to be one of the like random nobles that gets seduced. No. Movie episode two. Hell yeah. But no live commentary this time. Maybe live commentary. You think we can do it again? I think we need to... I think, st- I think a stream would be better. Yeah, I think so too. I don't know who, what kind of idiot would watch that. Eh, there's probably an idiot. But I, a stream would be better because then people would be able to like... We have three brain geniuses listening to us right now. So we can definitely get one idiot on our live stream. That's right. What's up, Cambodia? How's it going, brothers? And, or sisters. We actually don't know your gender. Comrades. Citizens. I actually prefer, like, I know you guys are leftists, so comrade is your thing. No, it's yeah. not. I well, really like it's citizen. Not. Citizen is a cool, like, identifier. Like, hello, yes. citizen X. I'd rather die than that be referred to as a comrade. Yeah, what if they're true. citizens of the world? Oh, hell yeah. Ugh. <laughs> Global citizen. I can't wait for the UN to be the super nation. It'll be great. Dude, Angela Merkel's dream. Boom, got him. I don't know if that picked up, but... Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, the other thing that I noticed this time around was uh, the courtroom scenes. So when you originally were introduced to a courtroom, it was in England um, and Charles Darnay was being tried for treason against England um, by passing along secrets from the Americans uh, who were fighting for their independence at that point. And uh, the later part court scenes are in France. And the biggest difference between the two was that in England, the judge actually was the one making the decision and just kind of threw out the case once it re- he realized that there wasn't any evidence for it. But in France, uh, the whole population is involved in your court case. And uh, you get this very, very strong tension with Darnay trying to say the right things 
um, and win over the crowd because ultimately the whoever's sitting at the bench is not really that important. Uh, it's the crowd and how they feel about it that uh, is really the deciding factor. And personally, I find that like horrifying, right? Like I'm not for, you know, appointed judges who can, you know, just, I don't know, interpret the law the way they want and sentence people the way they want. But, but there's something very, um, there's something terrifying about the idea of having a whole mob of people you need to please in order to not die. Yeah, it is a jury glory. But it it is concerning. I, I don't know. I don't, I don't feel comfortable with either, you know, being at the whims of, of one man's interpretation of law, I find concerning. But also, yeah, being at the whims of the mob is also scary. Um, it just feels like there's something... Um, there's something more immediate about the mob thing, right? So, you know, a jury is a part of a law system, not the whole one, right? But in this particular court scenario, right, the mob is pretty much the law. And they're swayed by, like, emotional appeals. Yeah, I think it's been built up well, or the fear of it has been built up well, because he's been talking about the mob mentality and how it sweeps people away. So you can, like, see it enter the courtroom, too, and become a kangaroo court. And I agree. I marked down the courtroom scene, too, because I thought it was the best scene in the book. It was like very I read that like 10 pages extremely quickly because it was so good because I just wanted to get more. I didn't even make that connection, though, between like the just English system at the beginning and then the kangaroo court at the end. That's a good comparison. Also, like, you know, Dickens does a really good job of portraying the mob as this thing that can be so sympathetic and like sentimental and then murderous at the same time right so there's all kinds of and we got this quite a bit in carlisle right where you know sometimes the mob will take you away with them on their back with you on their back and you know celebrate you as a citizen and then the next day they can just turn around and like stab you to death right you just don't know yeah which makes it particularly terrifying you just don't know the rules you know there are no rules right it's also terrifying when like there is no law so it's like oh the law is unjust because it's written by aristocrats we're getting rid of it okay well it's against the constitution but it's like oh it's against constitution well that was written by aristocrats so we're getting rid of that too so it's literally just anarchy and law of the jungle at that point and the mob is they have the most people they have the most pikes so they have the most power i mean when you're right you're right i thought the um well my favorite scene was the courtroom scene but i thought the best well i don't know i guess this is tied for best scene is when mr lori takes lucy away from the window because down below where they have their bank office in paris there's a grindstone and everybody comes to like sharpen their pikes and their swords after they've been murdering the prisoners of the uh, abbey prison and it's like that was just so good that it's like running red and he describes like how disheveled all of the people look in the crowd. I thought that was a very good scene too. Um, to bring that up, one of the quotes that I put down from that was uh, at the end of that chapter. Um, I thought those were just beautiful prose. Um, he says, quote, The great grindstone earth had turned when Mr. Lorry looked out again, and the sun was red on the courtyard. But the lesser grindstone stood alone there in the calm morning air with a red upon it that the sun had never given and would never take away. And that's like a... That last line is really fucking good. That stood out to me probably more than two or three quotes to start the most. And what a perfect like metaphor for the whole book too. A literal grindstone. Mm. 
And then, of course, you have it where Dr. Manet goes out immediately afterwards. And they're like, oh, shit, it's the Bastille prisoner. And bring him to LaForce. And then he's like, I'm a physician. And they're like, I guess you can be the physician for all the prisons. That was a, a, a really good uh, juxtaposition. Dickens is a good writer. I'm glad you think so. He, he really, really put together a story. He, in some of his other works, I've it's like very straightforward, which isn't necessarily bad. But I guess I get a kick out of some of the other authors we read, like Celine, where it's a challenge. But just because it's straightforward doesn't mean that it's bad in any way. And it especially picks up in the latter half of the book where it just becomes more fast or faster paced. Um, but yeah, I think the simplicity is actually a draw to it. And it's why a lot of people, it's one of the first like great authors that people read in high school, just because it is such an easy read comparatively to some of the other things we've read but also that it reads easy does not mean that it was easy to write like that's actually the work of like a master that it reads so easily and it's also very well contained right because like all of these things that we're talking about it's not like we're speculating on what dickens might have may thought right like it's very clear that he is trying to create this web of connections within the novel and you know, even at the very beginning, right, the second chapter, you're introduced to Mr. Laurie in the carriage and Jerry Cruncher comes out and the um, the line that Mr. Laurie is trying to pass along to alert um, people in England that uh, Dr. Manet is like free is recalled to life. And then Jerry talks to himself and he's like, recalled to life, you know, like I'll be in big trouble, you know, that and he's referring to himself as a grave digger and like. That was obviously intentional, right? And to construct a whole novel like that, I mean, you know, it's like every page has something along those lines. Uh, It makes it a very rich experience to read through it because you can, and then like, you know, in my case, rereading it, you can pick up on more of those things. In the way in which all the characters pull together at the end, you know, when they, a lot of them are uh, apart and their their storylines are distant from one another's in the beginning of the book and how they all, kind of converged for the end of the book is really really cool and uh i don't know the only comparison i can draw which is silly but is a uh, game of thrones uh george R. R. martin similarly i don't know if you agree brett uh like in which book he brings everybody back together in book three which is great yeah it's it's something about that is it's obviously a larger scale and a different genre but the ability of an author to do that and have it not feel forced is pretty cool a lot of forethought yeah i think that it was great or it's very satisfying as a reader that all the different plot points are kind of satisfied like each character has a resolution to what they've been doing because i feel like a lot of people get pissed if a random small character is introduced or if there's a subplot that's introduced and then it just goes nowhere like i still have it in my mind why the hell did tolstoy write about that one like village in the caucasus that never plays any part in the rest of the story none whatsoever that doesn't happen in this book like every little thing ties into something else later on in the book and for a reader it's like a little reward that you paid attention and so it's very satisfying um so i guess another thing i wanted to talk about was uh so when charles is waiting to die right this is before carton comes in and saves him i thought that dickens did a really good job with like the psychology of a dying man so he like darnay is obviously thinking about his family right and like he's trying to come to terms with the fact that he's about to die 
but I thought like there was a couple lines where he was talking about like imagining like you know what does this even look like right like how many stairs are there will I be first will I be last and uh, that to me at least made like the you know the presentation of what somebody might feel like on the eve of their death right counting the hours right like in coming with some sort of satisfaction that he's getting closer okay it's two you know I have one more and then it'll be three Uh, it made it like it put the pressure on I guess and it it I think it speaks to Dickens ability to um, like I said last time you know pry so far so far to make it believable like you're watching someone struggle with uh, this fact but not so much that like you're in their head right like you've possessed them or something like that yeah I was gonna say or I definitely agree with that in that I never feel like I get into any character's head, but my kind of metric of how well characters are written is how many descriptors you can use about their personality. And I feel like I could use at least five adjectives for each character, even though I never get in their head. They're like well-rounded enough that I know who they are. Oh yeah. So to kind of return to the mob a little bit, I thought, um, I was initially offended by, uh, and I forgot that Dickens uses the C as an analogy for the mob. Um, and the way I feel about that is like when people use C metaphors, it's kind of like when people use fire metaphors. It, I mean, the metaphor itself is basically a cliche, right? Um, maybe it wasn't for Dickens. I don't know. I doubt that, though, because everybody uses the fucking C. It definitely feels lazy to us. Um, yeah, but... Um, like I actually did appreciate it because he used different modes of the sea, right? And it was a it wasn't just like a metaphor or like uh like a simile, right? It was a whole motif for the three, you know, three or four chapters when the Bastille is falling and you know, he he has this idea of like the sea rising and falling and crashing and um you know, receding like all the different ways the sea can behave and I thought that was actually kind of the right way to go about it um you know an accessible thing people understand and then kind of weaving it in the whole way rather than just using it as some sort of like lazy comparison yeah i think most of the time it's just lazy because it's oh it's chaotic like the sea but i thought that he does it well especially at the beginning i think the scene is in the wine shop of the defarges and it's talking not necessarily about the sea being stormy but more that it's like rising and is continuing to rise and is going to like destroy the coastline. And it's like, it's similar, but that metaphor is like just different enough where it's like, okay, like that's a cool mental image of the sea continuing to rise and just like wiping away the coastline. Or like, I mean, this wasn't the sea, but it was water-based when um, the Manet family's in the house and that storm comes through, you know, and it sounds like the, the steps of, uh, of, you know, hundreds and hundreds of people that is like the foreshadowing of what's to come. I mean, you know, it's, he lays it on thick, right? Like I won't deny that it's, you know, if you're paying attention, it's like, Oh, okay. The bad stuff's go, it's a coming, right? We're going to get there. It's going to be bad. Uh, but it, you know, it's still, um, I don't know. It's kind of like watching a dramatic movie, right? Like you kind of want that to be there. And I wonder where the cutoff was for the weekly or monthly or however many installments there was. If that was kind of a like tune in for next week up the next week's episode. Oh yeah, for sure. I mean, at this point, this is one of Dickens' later novels, so he had his own thing. I mean, he could take up as many words as he damn well pleased. Um, but it's about keeping the audience on the hook, right? Building that tension, and he pretty much does. I mean, for sure, yeah. 
I felt like it was the end of an anime episode every time I finished a chapter, which is a appropriate and like level of um, artistic value. You know, Dragon Ball Z, Tale of Two Cities, same thing. I, I like Dragon Ball Z more. Get the fuck out of my house. <laughs> I don't know, man. Dragon Ball Z is pretty good. Yeah. I mean, cornerstone Dickens. to childhood. Yeah. Dickens, all right. Darnay is no Goku. <laughs> Jesus Christ. <laughs> so in Cindy Carton's no Vegeta? Uh, yeah, he's, 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 no, he's Krillin. He's Krillin? Yeah. Damn. Rough blow. Rough Lucy, blow. Lucy's Bulma. Yeah. We don't need to get into The guy who just this. dies all the time, you know, to give Goku the strength to kill his enemies. Yep. Have you guys watched, like, DBZ in recent times? I've not, no. Not in, like, five years. Okay, well, it's unwatchable. It is not a show. I don't even know how I did it as a kid because it, like, they have a Dragon Ball Z Kai, which takes out all of the filler, um, but I just tried to watch it straight before, and, I mean, it's just, like, it's like, you know, it's 25 minutes of nothing happening, right? And people just yelling and talking, and then eventually there's, like, a small bit of fighting, you know, four or five episodes in, and um, and then then there's probably some sort of, you know, set of memories that bring people back to the time when they... You know, had family and friends, but they're all dead now, and and somebody gets powers, and then they they kill their enemies. But there's no pacing. There's no pacing, and there's Dickens no pacing. has pacing. You son of a bitch. I'm just trying to antagonize you. Well, you're doing a good job. Finally, found a way to twist the knife. <laughs> I feel like the pacing is, and it's been the case for a lot of the books we've read. That the first like third is really slow. Like it was good what we had read last week. But it was just more Dickens saying general things that he himself thought versus this. It, there's none of that. It's just all the characters interacting with each other, which is why it's so much more fast paced. And I wonder, even for like, obviously, somebody who's a master author, it, I guess, is hard just to get the plot going like he does. But it's just a very slow build. And then all of a sudden it's like, all right, now the plot's going. Well, that's what you have to do. You have to create the world, establish the world, establish the setting, establish the conditions and the characters in order to make that like acceleration of the plot towards the climax feel feel exciting to the reader, like to, to, to care and to feel like, you know, your heartstrings being pulled in one way or another. True. I recently uh, watched the movie Hereditary. I know I've talked about this a lot, but it's such a slow burn for like two hours. And then the last 20 minutes are just like, jaw-dropping horrifying and yeah i think i agree with you there is something to the slow build and then bam all right here's the action yeah i mean i think that obviously what dickens is employing here but also i mean we have our issues with saline right but like just starting the book like we're at the war we're doing the thing people are being blown up we have this officer over here and he's yelling and screaming and then he eventually gets blown into fucking smithereens that also has its own kind of appeal to it. Um, obviously, Celine did an awful job of like, yeah, plot pacing the novel at all. Like, not he did the opposite, right? So it was it was like a really fast burn, and then just like you know, meandering for four hundred pages. I think for a book like that that kind of deals with existentialism, though, it has to go in that direction because you have to establish the character, his conditions, his mentality and psychology in order to care at all about his existential musings right. for 300 pages. <laughs> for the listener, I, we all shuddered. Yeah. I think for prose, Dickens is 
I find him better than Tolstoy, at least what we read. Um, I know you guys read Anna Karenina a bit earlier. I haven't read that, so I can't really comment. But I think Celine had like the most visceral scenes. Like I still remember all the French doctors sitting in the hospital and just how like putrid it is, like the smell and they're all smoking cigarettes and the ash is just falling on the cement tiles. And it's like, oh God. But Dickens has some very good pieces as well. I feel like he doesn't pop off where it's like paragraphs of excellent prose, but he has like, he. it's often like two or three sentences where it's like, ooh, damn, that was well-written. He also really employs repetition a lot, um, which is, um, I guess, kind of lowbrow. I don't know, but it, super British. Yeah, it's just, but it's very, very satisfying to read. I don't think it's lowbrow. I yeah, I mean, I guess maybe not. I just have this impression of that, like you know, using repetition as a way to make a point, especially as often as Dickens does as a tool. Um, but Dickens is very good at it, and he you know he can use it in that uh you know the way that he does in the very opening of the novel you know it was the best times it was the worst of times but he also can uh use it um as a you know a way of uh uh kind of being like sly or like trying to jab at someone you know when uh darnay is being um being tried right there's the mob that's outside the courthouse and you know he talks about them as it he says you know uh, they couldn't think about putting their heads on their pillows and they couldn't imagine their wife's putting their head on their pillows and they really couldn't have imagined anybody putting any heads on any pillows unless this man was murdered, right? And um, Dickens is you know, just basically trying to make the point that like these people are pretty fucking stupid. It came off to me more as like a poetic or lyrical device. Um, I know we talked about that at length in the last episode. I don't need to go into it too much, but... I forget it's not a couplet like that's not the right word but I know there is a specific pattern in the language where it's like duh and duh so it's like up syllable down syllable up syllable and it just is like nice and lyrical in the English language I don't know the correct term for it but it's just like pleasing to read meter is part of it you still talking about Sam's dick boom that's a little bit excessive yeah it's a girthy dick but it ain't no fucking chode, my dude. Just looking out for you, man. Thanks. I mean, what if you just had a long dick and a really thick dick? That's like, if you just had a massive chode, like, that's nothing to be ashamed of. Yeah, it's not a chode if it's short. Also, <laughs> yeah, that conversation will be just like every once in a while, a voice will just be like, dick. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. So the last thing I had here was uh, basically uh, one of the other scenes that jumped out to me was after the revolution has happened and all of the, um, all of the, why can't I think of the word, aristocrats who left, emigres, emigres, uh, left France to England and they hang around at Telson's Bank, which is, a, you know, an English and French bank, kept all of the aristocracy's money. And I just thought that this quote about uh, the aristocrats hanging around at Telson's Bank was really good. Um, it says, uh, as was natural, the headquarters and the great gathering place of Monsignor in London was Telson's Bank. Spirits are supposed to haunt the places where their bodies most resorted, and Monsignor without a guinea haunted the spot where his guineas used to be. And I just thought, like, you know, and Dickens is always degrading the aristocracy. Like, he always talks to them as, like, stupid and vile and cruel, and, uh, and in this case, pathetic, right? Which is good and satisfying. Something he has in common with his bud, Carlisle. I really think Dickens, you know, he departs with Carlyle in the uh, the sense of he actually wants 
modernity to happen. Yeah, I thought it was interesting. Or I wanted y'all's opinion on where you think Dickens falls on his opinion of the revolution. Because especially when it was still in living memory, like this was the thing. Like this was the historical event that your opinion about it shaped your opinion about the modern world. I think he views it positively. Definitely not the terror. I don't know anyone who really does view the terror positively, but I think he sees the development of the French Republic as an overwhelming positive. I have, or I marked down one interesting quote when they're at the kangaroo court. And uh, that's where I was kind of shocked. I was like, oh, I didn't expect him to be this sympathetic. He said, before that unjust tribunal, there was little or no order or procedure ensuing that any accused person, any reason, or without any reasonable hearing. There could have been no such revolution. So I was surprised at how sympathetic Carlisle was. So in the kangaroo court, um, he kind of inserts his own opinion here. He says, before that unjust tribunal, there was little or no order of procedure ensuing that any of the accused person did not have a reasonable hearing. There could have been no such revolution if all forms and ceremonies had not first been so monstrously abused that the suicidal vengeance of the revolution was to scatter them to the wind. Like, that's a good way of putting it. So um, what do you think that, like, reveals about Dickens' point of view on the revolution? I think he's a lot more horrified than Carlyle was about the injustices of the aristocracy. Like, Carlyle's like, mm, you guys failed, the church has failed, everybody should return to monarchist absolutism because the aristocracy sucks. Whereas Dickens is not in the same boat, even though he did become friends with Carlyle. Like he worked some pretty terrible jobs as a poor person when he was younger and he like made it out. So I feel like he has a lot more sympathy for the plight of the poor. I think Carlyle's criticism is more that they allowed the, so the social conditions for revolution to occur. Not necessarily that they were uh, tyrannical or, you know, an obstacle to liberalism is that that they failed at maintaining a stable society. True, yeah, I don't think Carlyle actually cared at all. Yeah, I mean, he cared insofar as Jacobins were killing people, right? Um, you know, pretty ladies and whatnot. Whereas I do feel like, um, I do feel like Dickens really has, I mean, he just has sympathy for the victims of this kind of chaotic environment. And it doesn't seem, he doesn't seem to put emphasis on any particular ones uh you know there's that one thing where that uh aristocrat that said let them eat grass um he was referenced in this uh novel but i did enjoy that he or not enjoy i should say i did respect that he is uh egalitarian in that sense right and uh and he he but he sees the french revolution as far as i can tell as like a horrifying but and maybe not necessary, but certainly within the French Revolution, there is a possibility for something greater. I would, I mean, agree with that general viewpoint that the revolution was terrifying. But even at the end of the edition that I have, which is different than y'all's, it mentions, and I've read this in a couple different histories, that the number of people that actually got chopped in the terror and stuff was minuscule compared to like anything Napoleon did. And also anything that came after the Industrial Revolution. Yeah. Yeah. The legacy is much more about the visceral horror of it uh, rather than the actual toll uh, in terms of death. Yeah. I think it was more the taboo of all these people that are supposed to be untouchable. They literally had legal rights to not pay taxes, to not have the same justice code. And then these people are just so abused, like, fuck it. No, we're killing you all. 
Well, the scarier thing is that people who were executed that weren't aristocrats, they're the people who were denounced. Right. It's when the law of suspects comes in and, and all that. And yeah, I mean, you know, and um, Mark Twain makes this point somewhere about like the two terrors, right? We hear about the French Revolutionary Terror, but we don't hear about really what the Ancien Regime was doing. Uh, and I mean, Dickens and uh, uh, Carlyle don't equivocate too much on that. I mean, Carlyle definitely doesn't put emphasis on it, but he does include that information. I feel that Dickens really does not shy away from and even kind of leans into the horror of ancien regime executions of all right first they're gonna burn you then they're gonna hang you and they're gonna let you down and they're gonna slowly pull out your guts while you're watching and then horses will pull you apart and there's like three torture scenes in this book all of which are about a page long and i feel like he's trying to point out like this is basically fucking crazy like this is unacceptable and especially since in the 1830s there was at least some reform away from it he was probably just like, oh, my God, I can't believe that this was happening, even up to like 50 years ago. At least the guillotine is a quick death. I mean, it was supposed to be more humane than the other ways of killing people then. So, I mean, it really was because a lot of times the axeman wasn't a good axeman. Mm. He would like hit you in the back instead of the neck. So it'd be like three chops or four before you actually got it off, your head off. Never mind if there was any like uh, sadistic pleasure involved with the manner of your death um the other thing i want to add is that like so you know the terror is thought of as a um you know this special horrifying event and i think to your point alex about um the way in which it's done is what's scary about it uh, because you know more people die from car accidents every year than died in the french you know the jacobin terror right but um we don't really get into our cars um uniquely afraid about that experience uh where when your whole social order is up for grabs right and uh there are people who you know your neighbors can turn you into the authorities at any moment um that strikes a very particular psychological fear and uh it's i mean you know it is horrifying right yeah why do we talk so much about mccarthyism or right or how things were under stalin in terms of like denunciation like it strikes a nerve for a reason. Mm -hmm. I think there's a fear like almost even worse than death of just being surveilled at all times. And especially that, well, yeah, just that you're being watched and also you could be punished arbitrarily because you're being watched at all points. I feel like that's almost a terror worse than death itself, having to live with that. So good points, everybody. <laughs> <laughs> Um, we had an interruption, but, uh, we're back. Um, and yeah. So any final thoughts about the novel and then we'll wrap things up. I thought it was, is like a engaging read and moving and poignant in a way that I certainly didn't expect being unfamiliar with Dickens. I had read great expectations and then one other book that I can't remember, um, from him in high school. And I just noted that this is markedly better, um, I know this was one of his later novels, so obviously he was a more mature author. But then also, yeah, I don't know. I went in without many expectations. I knew it was like one of the most popular novels of all time, but I somehow hadn't spoiled myself, so that was good. I mean, I knew the last line, but like how it actually got to that point, there were enough twists and turns that it had me going through the whole time. Um, you know, obviously, one of my favorite books. Super happy to have read it again. Um, I definitely agree with you, Brett. I've 
read um, Oliver Twist uh, before, and that also quite famous, but not nearly as uh, gripping as this. Um, also a bit juvenile in a way, um, especially because it focuses on children. But yeah, I mean, I, I love this book. I think the ending is one of the best endings I've ever read um, of a novel. Everything ties together just so neat and tidy, and um, and but not in a way that like you would see beforehand um at least not until you get to carton showing up um but yeah so i'm really glad to have done it and um we are going to finish eventually um this french revolutionary uh segment that we have um but first next week we are reading um two things right so we're reading edgar Allan poe's mask of the red um murder death right death. Mask, Mask of the Red Death? Mask of the Red Death, right? Oh, okay, cool. Yeah, Mask Murder of the death. Red Death. Yeah, I was just going with, because I didn't think Mask of the Red Death was correct. I was just trying to ham it up. If it's wrong, sorry, guys. Uh, okay, so we're going to read Edgar Allan Poe's Mask of the Red Death and... and we're going to read I Have No Mouth and I Must Scream by Harlan Ellison. Just the short story, not the full collection. Yep, so we're, um, we're going to read those two pieces for Halloween, and then afterwards... Um, we're going to be reading What is the Third Estate by uh, Abbe Siez, which is the like a primary source document. It's a political pamphlet that uh, that came out and kind of like kicked off the French Revolution. I also think next time we should have a lively discussion about Halloween costumes and appropriation and also what the best costumes are, because there's a lot to talk about there. Chloe's going as a bat. I am not dressing up. A slutty bat. A really slutty bat. You're going to be a vampire? So I haven't really settled on it because we're going to a Halloween party and therefore have to dress up. Um, but my initial idea was to do like an old timey strongman and uh, such a good idea. Yeah, wear like the like the shorts, like the striped shorts and the the tank top, and then get like a fake big ass barbell. Um, That'd be awesome. Yeah, it's it'll be a little bit chilly for that, as Chloe pointed out. But you know, I mean, I've been working on my bod, feeling pretty good about it. Um, I could you know throw out some flexes. It wouldn't be weird. No, be, like, that's a good. Also, that's your really leotard could be like George Clooney Batman nipples. Like it's perfectly yeah. all right to be nipping. It's end of October. That's it's true. cold, man. It's true. That unitard might not be too uh, flattering, though. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, um, thank you everybody for listening, and um, we will see you next week. See you guys next week. Have a good week, everyone.